Certainly glad for the presence of everyone this evening. <clears throat> Sound like I'm getting a little bit of hoarseness going here already. <clears throat> As Monty was announcing earlier, we're going to finish out uh, the epistle of James tonight. We're going to be doing the uh, last 14 verses of chapter 5. I've entitled the lesson tonight, Establish Your Heart. And I was going to read it, for, but for lack of time, uh, we're just going to go ahead and go into the chapter. And uh, I'm going to be using my phone. I've put all my notes and everything on my phone, so hopefully I don't mess it up. <laughs> don't mess up my phone where I lose the lesson. So we remember from last week's study that Chapter 5 starts out with warnings to the rich. Now remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians out of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're scattered abroad. So we might deduct that these warnings might be for all Jewish Christians as well as us today, not to seek to be rich. And we should learn from the examples of what can happen when we seek after wealth. So he begins... Verse 7, With therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. So he begins this verse with the word therefore. And so the word therefore means uh, for this reason or for because of what he had just written in the verses previous. So he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. We remember a few weeks ago that when he spoke on chapter 1 of James, how he said James started this epistle talking about patience or endurance. And that he closes out this epistle reminding the Christian to endure, to be patient. And that's exactly what he's doing in these last verses. And that's where we are now. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So James says right at the start of this epistle to count it joy when you have trials because when your faith is tested and you don't give up or you become impatient, it produces patience that helps to make you complete so you lack nothing. And I think as we study these last verses, we'll see that he's teaching us some principles on how to endure. <clears throat> now, when he speaks of the coming of the Lord here, I think he's referring to the second coming of the Lord when the Lord will judge the world. But even more about the time when each of us pass from this life by reason of death, when our fate is sealed and then we stand before the Lord to be judged. You know, it's been almost 2,000 years since this epistle was written. And our Lord hasn't came back yet. But that doesn't mean he won't come back tonight. 
We don't know when he will come back. So we need to be prepared for his return. And so he's saying, he's saying be patient, endure, and be ready when that time comes. Then he gives an example of the farmer waiting patiently for fruits of his field to mature so that he can harvest the best crop possible. If you know anything about farming, you know that it's important that before a farmer can plant, he needs a certain amount of rain so that he can prepare the soil for the seed. You know, if he tries to plant before the soil is ready, he may not be able to plant the seed at the depth he needs it to be at to have a successful part of uh, an excess, I can't get it out, a <clears throat> successful start of his crop. Now the crop may fail before it gets started. So uh, he also needs a certain amount of rain to fall for that seed to germinate and to burst forth from the ground. If he gets too much rain at the start, it could, a good heavy rain could pound the soil down and make the ground hard and keep the plant from bursting forth. So he needs that rain. He waits patiently for that rain in order to have the best possible harvest. Now, if the rain doesn't come at the right time, and we know how that is here in the panhandle of Texas, his crops could fail and he may have to plow it under. We see farmers doing that all the time here in the panhandle, especially those dryland farmers that uh, they plant a crop and it doesn't produce. And so they just have to plow it under. Now we know uh, that now, because of necessity, that many ranchers have took the rain out of the process and they've turned to irrigation. So they do the same thing with the irrigation system as they do waiting for rain. He goes on to say in verse 8, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, or is near. The King James Version says, draweth nigh. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So as James says to establish our hearts or make our hearts impenetrable. He says to make them <coughs> strong and sure, impenetrable from evil and to show it to be true, to prove it, so that at the coming of the Lord we can reap the fruits of our labor or eternal life just as the farmer reaps his crop when it's time for the harvest. You know, Paul seems to think, seems to indicate that this is something that the Lord does. And that's exactly right. He says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with all his saints. 
if we read and study and meditate on his word and are obedient to his word, he will make us to increase and abound in love one to another and to all. And he will establish our hearts blameless in holiness when he comes back to take us home with him and the saints that have gone on before. So in verse 9, James starts to talk about some ways to establish our hearts. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You know, the King James says, Grudge. It says, Do not grudge against one another. In other words, don't groan against another, specifically your brother. Do not murmur because his hardships are not as hard as yours. Don't murmur because he may have more materially than you do. Uh, or for any other reason for that matter. And obviously this kind of behavior is likely to cause you to be condemned by the judge. He goes on to say in verse 10... And 11, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We've all heard the stories of the prophets preached over and over how they suffered and how they were killed because the people didn't want to hear what God wanted them to do. They wanted God behind them. They didn't want him in front of them. They didn't want to be obedient to God. We find over in Isaiah the 30th chapter, in verse 9 through 10, it says that this is a rebellious people, lying children, Children who will not hear the law of the Lord. Who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. The prophets just weren't saying what the people wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear what God wanted them to do. They wanted to hear things that were easy to their ears. Just like today. And when the prophets wouldn't do their bidding, well, then the people killed them. You know, the prophets were patient. And they kept teaching, trying to teach what God wanted to do. And they endured the whole time. But they were killed. And they endured to the end of whatever their end was to be. And that end was that the Lord was compassionate and merciful to them. Because they were obedient and they endured. And of course we all know about the sufferings of, and afflictions of Job. You know Job was a good servant in God's eyes. Even though he wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. The scripture says he was perfect and upright. And he feared God and he eschewed evil. And when God allowed Satan to take everything from him. He remained faithful and patient before God. When God allowed Satan to afflict him with boils, 
he remained faithful and patient and endured the affliction. That is, until his friends opened their mouths and got involved. And they provoked Job to get impatient with God. And then Job got pretty bold with God, questioning God's power. You know, when Job realized the power of God and how he had been blessed by God because he believed God and he feared him, he repented of his impatience. And God forgave him because Job endured through it all. God blessed Job with twice as much as he'd had before because he had faith in God. And today, Job is remembered for that patience. And God showed how compassionate and merciful he is to those who are patient and endure to the end through Job. Also, I want to consider the Apostle Paul. We've read many times about the trials and tribulations that, and persecutions that Paul suffered during his ministry for Christ. And we know how he remained steadfast through it all, enduring more than probably any of us would be willing to endure. But how many will be able to say what Paul was able to say toward the end of his life? Let's listen to what Paul told Timothy beginning in verse 5 of chapter 4 in 2 Timothy. He tells Timothy, But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So he told Timothy to do exactly the same thing that he was doing. I guess Paul was sort of Timothy's mentor. And he was teaching Timothy how to, to be an evangelist. And he goes on to say, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, or he was slowly dying. And he says, And at the time of my departure is at hand. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me to that to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul is a good example for us to look at as someone that endured through uh, the trials and tribulations and persecutions that he had to go through. Paul was patient and endured to the end, and God showed him great compassion and mercy. And Paul knew. Also, I want to say something about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We all know how that when he became well known for his ministry and the things that he taught, he pretty much became like an enemy of the state, even though he wasn't really a threat to any of the kings at this time. He spent a lot of time hiding and even said he had no place to lay his head. And when he returned to his hometown of Nazareth, he found no honor there. Jesus could have saved himself from all the pain and agony that he'd had to go through, but he didn't. He endured to the end. Look at the admonition and exhortation that Paul gives us in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 2. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. You know, Jesus didn't want to have to go through all the pain and agony of the cross, but he endured it, despising the shame that was put upon him and leaving us an example of how to be obedient to the Father by enduring by the will of the Father. And through following after these examples, we can know the compassion and the mercy of the Lord. And James goes on in verse 12 and says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear neither by heaven nor by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no no, lest you fall into judgment. James seems to switch topics all of a sudden from enduring to the sin of, of swearing. And I'm sure this is another uh, way to help us endure, to not be involved in this kind of conduct. James is basically reiterating what Jesus had already said in the Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 34. There Jesus said, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You know, there's so much that can be said about this. We could go down a very large rabbit hole and, and spend a lot of time there. But we're not going to do that. Notice that Jesus says not to swear at all. Well, so what kind of actions might this include, swearing? Well, it might mean don't swear an oath to do anything you don't intend to do. It might mean don't make promises that you don't intend to keep. It might mean don't swear that something is the truth when you know it's a lie. It might mean don't speak words that are not edifying or profitable to the hearers, knowing that we shall give an account for every idle word we speak. And it might mean that you never use the name of the Lord God in vain. These are just a few of the things I thought of that could cause us to fall into judgment. You know, sometimes we might be called to swear on the Bible in a court of law to tell the truth 
and the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And if we are, then whatever we say or answer better be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And of course, as Christians, we should always speak the truth. In James chap in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now James seems to be throwing some random things here now together to help Christians keep their hearts established. You know, we all have our ups and downs. Sometimes we go through trials that can get us discouraged and, and depressed. And our human instinct is to mope around and feel sorry for ourselves. But James says the antidote for times like that are to go to God in prayer. Now the psalmist David offers this bit of wisdom in Psalms chapter 50 in verse 14. He says, offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. And God says, call upon me in the day of the trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me in verse 15. You know, James really stresses the need and the importance of prayer in these few verses to keep our hearts established. But not only to pray, but to sing praises to God when things are good. Either way, we glorify God. He goes on to say in verse 14, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You know, the commentaries that uh, I read seem to agree that this practice of anointing someone sick with oil was a practice that was used back in the times when miracles, <clears throat> when miracles were uh, being done. Uh, we see an example of it in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus had sent the apostles out two by two giving them power over unclean spirits and to preach the gospel and repentance. In verse 13 he says, And they cast out demons and anointed them, anointed oil, many, sorry, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. But the commentary said, But when there were no more apostles to impart this gift to the elders and miracles ceased, then this ritual of anointing with oil ceased as well, at least in the church. You know, there's still some religious organizations today that try to make people believe that they can heal them with the anointing of oil. There's a cousin of mothers that apparently thinks he has that power. And I'm not sure what religious organization he's affiliated with because I think he's been affiliated with three or four different organizations. Anyway, he came to Debbie's bedside when she was dying in hospice. And of course, she had no idea he was there. And so he pulls out this little applicator bottle that looked kind of like a, a band roll-on deodorant dispenser. And he rolls it across her forehead. And he says a prayer. And then goes on his merry way, thinking he'd really done something special. Of course, I don't need to tell you 
what he did. Didn't do a thing for her or anybody else but him. In verse 15, James says, and the prayer, I'm sorry, I lost that verse. Go back to here. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. We clearly can see here that it's not the actual oil that saves the sick, even though it could have contained some uh, properties of medicinal uh, or some medicinal properties in it. But the prayer of faith is what does the good. You know, and just a prayer of words will not save the sick. It needs to be a real genuine prayer of faith so that the Lord will raise him up and forgive him of his sins. You know, again, it's all about glorifying God through prayer by putting your faith in God to perform what he is able to perform. Let's go on to verse 16. He says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know, this is something that we don't see happening very often these days, at least in the assembly. Every now and again, someone will come forward and confess their trespasses. But it's not something that has to be done. You don't have to come before the church to, have, uh, to confess your faults unless you feel like you need the whole congregation's prayers for you. You may, perhaps there's more of it happening in a person-to-person -person type setting. I don't know. Maybe some of you guys that are in leadership positions see more people calling or coming to you, uh, confessing their trespasses and asking you to pray for them. I know I haven't had anyone come or call me in, in quite a while. And so if they're not, there must be a reason for that. And these are some reasons I thought might exist. And I'm not going into a lot of detail about them for time's sake. The first reason I thought of is pride. Pride is a biggie. A lot of people will not confess their faults to one another because of pride. You know, pride can build a wall and the longer that festers, the wall could just get taller. And a person may soon believe that they haven't done anything that requires a confession because it's all about them. <clears throat> Number two on my list is shame. Sometimes shame can cause a person to retreat into a shell that's hard to penetrate. And then people may think that what they've done is so terrible that there's no way that they can get forgiveness. You know, sometimes a person must feel shame before they're able to repent of that sin. So it's kind of a catch-22. So they may be overwhelmed with shame or too overwhelmed with shame to ask for the help they need to feel the shame that they need to feel in order to confess their sins to others and to receive forgiveness, if that makes any sense. Number three, trust. Trust is another biggie. 
the fear of someone leaking out a secret that you entrusted them to keep between you and them and God. And that's the last thing that needs to happen. If a person feels they can't trust anyone, they may never seek help. So as Christians, we should always strive to be trustworthy. Number four on my list is faith. When we don't believe that confessing our trespasses to someone will accomplish the forgiveness that we seek, you know, without faith, we will fail every time. We must have faith. We must believe that the Lord will forgive us if we ask him to. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus wants to forgive us because he doesn't want anyone to perish. And we should have faith in that. The last on my list has to do with the second part of this verse. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, here we go. Confidence in one's righteousness. A person may think that there's no one righteous enough to pray for my sins. Or that there's someone who can deliver an effectual, fervent prayer for my sins. Who is a righteous person? Someone like Job? Well, maybe not just like Job. The Bible says he was perfect and upright. That might be raising the bar a little too high. But perhaps someone who is living right, who believes God and fears God and eschews evil. We're not righteous by our own merit, but are made righteous through obedience to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We receive the righteousness of God by the grace that he gives us. You know, Jesus inferred that we are righteous, saying, unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, we shall in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. James inferred it here in this verse. He said, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So we should be able to discern by how someone is living their life if they are righteous or not. And we ought to be able to eliminate that reason from our list and then work our way up and down the list to eliminate all reasons for not doing what James tells us here to do. Confess your trespasses to one another. So it would probably be a very good thing for us to confide in one another about some of our peculiar weaknesses and infirmities especially with those with whom we have closer relationships and friendships with. It could really strengthen the bonds of love and unity in our congregation. Amen. However, we must be careful not to choose someone to help us who may be struggling with the same sins that we are. That could be counterproductive. But two, at the same time, if it is someone who has been able to overcome that particular sin, and reestablish their heart, that could turn out to be very helpful.
And so, the prayer of a righteous man. He who prays must be a righteous man. Not in an absolute sense, which none of us can be, but in a gospel sense, which God has made us through obedience to his Son and the gospel. He must be one that does not approve of any iniquity or evil thing. And the prayer itself must be fervent or impassioned, sincere, a pouring out of one's own heart to God. And then James gives us this great example of a righteous man in verses 17 and 18. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. You know, sometimes we make the mistake of looking to the goodness of a man rather than looking where we ought to look, to the grace of God. You know, Elijah was a man just like us, a man with like passions as we have. No, he wasn't perfect by any means. But he prayed earnestly a fervent prayer that God heard and answered twice. He prayed and it did not rain for three and a half years. And when he prayed again, God heard him and it rained. Again, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Finally, James finishes out the epistle with this statement in verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know, we never like to see anyone turn away from the truth, but occasionally we see it happen. Sometimes we're utterly shocked when it happens, and other times we're not surprised. Sometimes we see them headed in that direction and we try to head them off, so to speak. Kind of like a calf that has wandered away from the herd and can't find their way back. We go after them and sometimes they put up a fight and don't want to turn around. Sometimes with a little persuasion, you can turn them around. With others, it may take a little tender loving care. And some are so stubborn, nothing you try to do can turn them around. You know, the Apostle Peter gives us a little insight into something we can do if we want to have hope of turning them around and keeping the rest of, her, rest of the herd together. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, he says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And there's that word fervent again. We need to have a passionate love for one another a sincere love for one another. You know, it was love that covered our sins when Jesus died on the cross. It was love, his blood that covers our sins when we need forgiveness for sins that we may have committed since we last received pardon from him. As Christians, we need to love one another with a fervent love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Loving one another with a fervent love like Christ should 
create a bond between us all that's strong and not so easily broken. And if it is, it can be more easily repaired and thus hide a multitude of sins. Folks, the bottom line is this. We need each other. That's all there is to it. We can't make it on our own. And the more we work together and help each other to establish our hearts through the bond of love that flows from the Lord, the more we'll be able to endure trials and tribulations and be ready when the Lord comes for us. One last verse I want to leave you with. Back in James chapter 1, verse 12. James said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The lesson is yours. I hope there's been something said that's been uh, edifying to you and beneficial to you in some way. I know it's been beneficial to me to study this lesson. We never like to close without offering an invitation. To those that are subject to the gospel call, if you're one here and you're subject to the gospel call, we invite you to come and let your wishes be known while we stand and sing the song that's been selected.